Ishabiav, which is the ninth of Av. That's a date on the Jewish calendar. Jews all over the world, they pack into their synagogues for a day of mourning and sorrow. They read Jeremiah's book of Lamentations, and they mourn the destruction of their temple. It's an irony of history that Solomon's temple fell to the Babylonians, and then the rebuilt temple fell to the Romans in 70 AD on the exact same date. The Babylonians conquered the city in 586 B.C. and destroyed the temple. The Romans in 70 A.D. and destroyed the temple on the exact same day of the year, the 9th of Av, Tisha B'Av. It's now an infamous day in the history of Israel. In the year 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian general, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. He cut off her supply lines. Life on the inside became unbearable. The Jews were starving. Many resorted to cannibalism. After the siege, the walls were breached. The temple was burned. The people were pounded into submission. And most of the surviving Jews were carted off as slaves to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar took Zedekiah, the king of Judah at the time, and had him tortured. He killed his three sons before him, Then he plucked out Zedekiah's eyes, so the last thing the king ever saw was the murder of his three sons. As the slaves were taken back to Babylon, they left Jerusalem from the north, where the Damascus Gate is today. There alongside the road is a hill, and in that hill there's a cave. Today the cave is called Jeremiah's Grotto, for it was there that the prophet Jeremiah sat and wept as God's people were taken back to Babel. As they paraded by, Jeremiah wrote these words in this sad lamentation. He writes in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 14. I have become the ridicule of all my people, their taunting song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness He has made me drink wormwood. He has also broken my teeth with a gavel and covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. And I said my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction in roaming, the wormwood and the gall. My soul still remembers and sinks within me. Pretty depressing, don't you think? But in verse 21, the tone dramatically changes. For this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah saw into the future, and it was not as bleak as the past. There was hope. Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is a merciful God. He's faithful to his people. Therefore, they should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. 
And this is what the Jews in Babylon did. In Psalm 137, we find a psalm sung by one of the exiled Jews in Babel. It reads as follows. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song, and those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. The Jews in Babel were homesick. They were weeping for Zion. Song and mirth were impossible. They had hung their harps on the tree limbs. How could anyone ask them to make merry? They say, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. The psalmist was a Jew living in Babylon, but his heart longed for his homeland, for Jerusalem, and for the land that God had given Abraham and his people. As Jeremiah said, he was waiting quietly for salvation. The Babylonians first invaded Judah in 605 B.C. The Jews who were deported to Babylon lived there for 70 years. For a whole generation, they were faced with the challenge of retaining their faith and convictions in a hostile pagan environment. And there was no better example of this kind of commitment than Daniel. Daniel is an example for you and me. You know, it's interesting. For the first 200 years of American history, Christians have been the majority in our society. Christianity has been respected and its values upheld by the culture at large. But today, that's changing. Christian morals, even Christian marriage, is being rejected by a society that's growing more pagan, more atheistic. Today, Christianity is becoming the minority status. And that's why Daniel is for us today. He teaches us how to live as a minority. When he was a young man, maybe 14, 15 years old, he was uprooted from his home in Jerusalem and he was taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar to serve in Babylon's royal court. On several occasions, Daniel could have compromised his loyalty to God. But Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 tells us, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. The food that he was given to eat was a violation of Jewish law, kosher laws. Daniel appealed to his authorities and he proposed a test. For 10 days, they should let Daniel eat acceptable foods to see if God would make him as healthy and as strong as the others. Well, God blessed a young Daniel's commitment and caused him to prosper. Over a period of years, time has a way of whittling away a person's spiritual commitment, but not with Daniel. Daniel remained strong. The old Daniel was as devoted to God as the young Daniel. Daniel was over 80 years old when his enemies taught King Darius into issuing a foolish decree. For 30 days, all Babylon was forbidden to pray or petition anyone but the king. Of course, they all knew Daniel's habit. That's why they proposed the decree, that Daniel's habit was to pray three times each day to his God. Well, when Daniel heard of the law, guess what he did? Did he try to hide his faith? Nope. Did he try to fight it in the courts? 
get a lawyer and sue? No. He simply did what it was always his habit to do. The Bible tells us he knelt on his knees and prayed and gave thanks before God. Daniel was arrested and he was thrown into a den of lions. It's amazing. There's no record of him being the least bit afraid. God had delivered Daniel so many times before he knew his plight would be determined, not by the claws of the lions, but by the hand of his God. Someone has suggested that if the lions had eaten Daniel, they would have choked, for he was all backbone. He was a brave, courageous young man, or an old man at this time. Daniel 6 verse 23 tells us about the outcome. We're told the next morning Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. Always remember, even if they throw you in a den of man-eating lions, to be in God's will is the very safest place you can possibly be. I ran across a letter from a soldier on the battlefield. It was sent home to his 10-year-old son. The father had written, The first prayer I want you to say for me is not, God, keep daddy safe, but God, make daddy brave. And if he has hard things to do, make him strong to do them. Son, life and death don't matter, but right and wrong do. Daddy dead is daddy still, but daddy dishonored before God is something too awful for words. This is a letter that could have been written by Daniel. Or it could have been the prayer prayed by his three Hebrew friends. Imagine seeing 300,000 people stretched out across a desert floor, all of them bowing down to an image of the Babylonian king. Now look closer, peer in closely. You can see three lone men. While everyone else is bowing, they're still standing. These men refuse to worship the king's idol. They're Hebrews who worship Yahweh, the one true God. Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael are better known in Babylon as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They get arrested because of their defiance, and they are thrown into a furnace of fire. God chooses to deliver his faithful followers, and seen in the midst of the fire is a fourth person. The scripture says, like the Son of God, Jesus was with them in the fire. The only thing the flames burned were the ropes that had, that had once bound these men. And yet before they're tossed into the flames, these three Hebrews, they express their faith. They say, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, we do not serve your gods. Now, I want you to notice this. Real faith, it isn't based on the outcome of our trial or on our circumstances, but on the truthfulness of God. God alone is worthy to be worshipped and served. And even if he chooses not to deliver us, real faith says we will never, ever compromise our faith. Well, Daniel was not only a man of faith and conviction, but he was a man of vision. And God revealed to him glimpses into the future. 
He foresaw the world-governing empires that would follow Babylon, the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. He even saw the world empire that's still future, the end times empire of the Antichrist. But Daniel saw even further to the end of the age, to the final kingdom, the kingdom of God. All his visions of the future were assigned to Daniel and to the people that ultimately God is in control of the affairs of mankind, that history is in reality his story. And it's said that God wasn't finished with the Hebrews. For even in the midst of their captivity, in the midst of their bondage there in Babylon, God was making startling new promises of their future glory. To Ezekiel, the prophet there in Babylon, and to Jeremiah, who lived at the same time but back in Jerusalem, God promised to the Hebrews a new covenant. With the covenant that he had given to Moses, God wrote his will on stone tablets. But with the new covenant, the Holy Spirit writes God's will on our hearts. Jeremiah 31 verse 33 speaks of this amazing new covenant. He says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. What a wonderful set of promises. That God will make his law instinctive to our hearts. That we'll know him personally. And that he'll forgive us of our sins. And not only forgive us, but he'll forget those sins as well. What God forgives, he forgets. Ezekiel 36 verse 26 reiterates these promises. He says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He'll take out that stubborn heart and he'll replace it with a compliant heart. God takes hearts that were as hard as a rock and makes them as soft as a baby's tender bottom. He makes us sensitive to his will and to the welfare of each other. God puts a love in our hearts for him and for our fellow man. This is the new covenant that God paid for and gives to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he took the cup, the cup that represented his blood, and he uttered these words, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. See, God had made a way. Jesus made a new way for God to deal with people. The new covenant took the place of the rules that God had given to Moses. The old covenant told us what to do, but it wasn't able to give us the power to do it. Folks were shielded from God's wrath under the old covenant, but they didn't experience God's love. Their sin was covered, but it was never forgotten. In contrast to the old covenant, the new covenant changes the hearts of men. And it puts people in touch with God and it blots out our sin forever and ever. What a great covenant we have in Christ. Well, the new covenant is another of the foundational covenants that God made with his people Israel. It consists of three promises. You want to write these down. Regather, regenerate, 
and reestablish. It was while they were in a hopeless Babylon that God promised his people these three wonderful promises that he will regather his people back to their land, that he will revive their hearts through the blood of Jesus, and that he'll reestablish his kingdom to Israel. Remember this covenant now because it's the background for the rest of your Bible. The remainder of the Old Testament discusses how the Hebrews were regathered from Babylon to the land of Judah. The Gospels in the New Testament letters explain the work that Jesus did to regenerate our hearts. And the book of Revelation is about how God plans to reestablish his kingdom on the earth and forever. And so remember the new covenant. We are all a part of it. It's our hope. Regather, regenerate, reestablish. And so on your paper, in the last section, we'll write down new covenant, And then the three R's, regather, regenerate, and reestablish. And here's how we're going to remember the new covenant. What are we going to do? We're going to point to the nail scars in Jesus' hands. Because it was his blood that paid for the new covenant. So the new covenant. Regather, regenerate. Reestablish. Great. Now, as I said, the remainder of the Old Testament deals with the first part of the new covenant. At the time, the Jews were in Babylon, but God made a promise that they would be returned to the land that He had given to Abraham. There was only one problem. What about this mighty Babylonian empire? At the time, Babylon was the most powerful city in the world. It was considered impossible to overthrow. Its walls were 300 feet high, 87 feet thick. Even if another nation was foolish enough to attack, Babylon had food reserves that would last 20 years. But Babylon's enemies were smart. The Persians, they diverted the river that flowed under Babylon's walls. And the army marched into the city through the dried up riverbed. The Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon without even firing a shot. The Babylonians and their army were taken totally by surprise. The only people that had a sense of what was happening that night were those who had attended the king's party that very night. It was actually a drunken orgy. And the Babylonian king had mocked the God of Israel. He had brought out the vessels that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem. And he'd poured wine into the vessels, using God's sacred vessels as beer mugs. While mocking God and blaspheming God, suddenly a hand appeared on the wall and wrote a message against the wall. When King Belshazzar saw God's handwriting on the wall, he became afraid. So much so that we read in Daniel chapter 5 verse 6, it says, The king's countenance changed. And his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened. The joints of your hips getting loosened is a nice way of saying you sold your britches. In other words, the handwriting and God's warning scared the stuffing out of the man. 
The message read, many, many, tekel, euphorsen. Many means numbered. Tekel means weighed. Euphorsen means divided. In other words, the Babylonian king's hours on this earth were numbered. He had already been judged or weighed in the balance. And his kingdom would soon be divided among his enemies. God's words were fulfilled that very night. The conquering king, the king of Persia, was named Cyrus. And one of the first decrees out of Cyrus's mouth was to allow the Jews to return to their homeland. Cyrus even bought supplies to finance their journey. It is amazing. But go back and read Isaiah 44 and 45, 100 years. Isaiah was writing 100 years before Cyrus was even born. And in those chapters, God mentions him by name and even describes in detail the events that would surround the fall of Babylon and Cyrus's benevolence toward the Jews. Well, the first Hebrews to return to Judah did so in 535 B.C. under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. Governor Zerubbabel's top priority was to rebuild the temple. As soon as he arrived, he laid the foundation stone for a new temple. But the work was more difficult than he thought. And here's a vital lesson for us. As soon as God begins to bless, the enemy starts to battle. It's true. See, for the 70 years the Hebrews were in Babylon, new people had moved into their former homes. The Samaritans didn't want the Jews returning to their land. And the Samaritans used three methods to hinder the work of rebuilding the temple. Infiltration, irritation, and intimidation. And this is important for us to know, for Satan sometimes will try these same three methods to hinder the building of his church. He doesn't want the church to expand. Thus, he tries to sabotage our efforts. Sometimes he'll try to infiltrate. Enemies of the Jews tried to join Zerubbabel to undermine God's work. And pastors, too, need to beware of folks who join the church to hinder and interfere. It's possible they're even sent by Satan. Second, the enemy will try to irritate. Ezra chapter 4, verse 4 tells us that the people who had moved into the land and who didn't want the Jews returning home tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building. In other words, they threw up all kinds of roadblocks and obstacles. And then third, The enemy tries to intimidate. The opposition actually wrote a letter to the king of Persia to force a stoppage of the work. They actually shut the work down for 15 years. In the meantime, though, God raised up two prophets to encourage his people and to assist the Jews in rebuilding the temple and in rebuilding their land. The prophet Haggai and Zechariah came alongside Zerubbabel and offered him their support. In fact, Zechariah encouraged him. In chapter 4, verse 6, it tells us, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The building of the temple would not be accomplished by human ingenuity or human strength, not by might nor by power, but it will take a work of God's spirit. 
And the same is true for us in our temple building efforts. Never forget, church work is God's work. We shouldn't trust in our own might or in our own wisdom. We need to seek the help of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah encouraged Zerubbabel, whereas Haggai rebuked the people. He saw them building their own expensive homes while God's house lay in ruins. He warns them that God will cut off his blessings until they put him first. The Jews resumed work on the temple in 520 B.C. and completed the temple five years later. Well, just as the Jews were taken to Babylon in three waves, they returned from Babylon to Judah in three different waves over a period of about 90 years. In 535 B.C., Zerubbabel returned to rebuild the temple. In 458 B.C., a priest and scribe named Ezra returned to encourage the people. And then in 445 B.C., Nehemiah returned to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, Ezra rebuilt the people, and Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. And so you can write that down on your sheet of paper there. Rebuild temple, Zerubbabel. Rebuild people, Ezra. And rebuild walls, Nehemiah. And here's how we'll remember it. Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. You know the little thing we did when we were kids? Here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors, and there's all the people. You remember that? Remember? Okay. Zerubbabel built the temple. Ezra rebuilt the people. And Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. We got the walls, see? We don't move the walls. I was just showing you. Around. Yeah, we don't move. Walls are stationary. Yeah. All right, everybody got that? So Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple. Ezra rebuilt the people. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. Great, great, great. Now, sadly, not all the Jews returned to the land of Israel. The book of Esther speaks of Jews who stayed in Persia. And the story of Queen Esther, I commend you to read the book. It demonstrates how God took care of his people even in their unbelief. Nehemiah is also an interesting story and a study on effective leadership. Nehemiah was living in Shushan, the winter palace of the Persian king. He was the king's cupbearer, a prominent position, a royal attache, and he was trusted. Nehemiah was the person who sipped the king's drink to make sure that it wasn't poisoned by his enemies, an important position. Well, the story of Nehemiah begins when he receives a report on the progress of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And the news was disturbing. A delegation of Jews just back from Judah told him in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 3, the survivors who are left from the captivity are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. And in the next verse, Nehemiah tells us how he reacted. He says, 
I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah had a prominent position in the court of Persia. He ate the finest foods. He lived a life of luxury. But what was going on in Judah broke his heart. Nehemiah sat down and he wept. He says, for many days, God burdened this brother's heart. And I want you to know, one of the greatest honors that can come upon a person is to receive a God-given burden. For God to harness our lives to a specific purpose. See, when God calls you to help shoulder a burden, He's counting on you and your trustworthiness. He's enrolling you in His service. What an honor this is. For me, my life would be meaningless and hollow and shallow without a specific burden from God. In 1980, God put a burden on my heart to start a Calvary Chapel in our community. And over the last 39 years, that burden has only grown in intensity. I'm praying that like Nehemiah, God will place a specific burden on you. Well, after waiting on God and praying about his need, the Lord led Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem and lead the effort to rebuild the walls of the city. The first thing we notice about Nehemiah was his organizational abilities. He divides the wall into small sections and then assigns a different section to each of the families. I'm sure you've heard the old saying, how do you eat an elephant? Answer, one bite at a time. And that's how Nehemiah built the wall, one section at a time. And this is good instruction for us. God wants his people to be organized. Believers want to serve the Lord. God puts it in their hearts, but they need good leadership. They need leaders who will challenge them and help them find their place on the wall. And then give them specific directions on how to help in the building. Well, as with Zerubbabel, Nehemiah also encountered opposition. Because of the threat of physical attack, he set guards along the wall to protect the workers. We're told in Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 17, Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other held a weapon. What a visual for us. Nehemiah had his workers carry a shovel in one hand and a sword in the other. They battled and they built. And as Christians, this should be our mentality. It takes both a sword and a shovel to grow and to do God's work. See, if all we do is build, then when we're not looking, Satan will come in and tear what we've built down. But if all we do is stand guard and try to fight, we'll never build anything. We need to both battle and build. We need a sword and a shovel. Well, once the walls were up around Jerusalem, the city became a safe place again. Business resumed. Communities formed. Public gatherings took place. Now that the basic needs were met, the people could focus on the higher calling of worshiping God. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra the priest stands before the people and reads aloud the the law of God. And and it was a mind-blowing experience. In fact, the people wept when they heard the law, for they realized how far short they had fallen from God's standards. 
Nehemiah and Ezra commanded the people not to mourn, rather to focus on how far they needed to go. Uh, Not just how far that they had fallen, but how far they needed to go. They needed to focus on the progress they needed to make. And I think this is good advice for us. You know, there's two ways you can look at your life. You can look at where you are compared to where you need to be, and you can get discouraged, like the children of Israel in the times of Ezra and Nehemiah. But you can also look at where you are compared to where you've been, and you can get really encouraged. That's why we need to be challenged to grow, but we also need to celebrate our growth. I love Nehemiah's words in chapter 8, verse 10. There he says, Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And it is the Lord's joy that gives us wings to rise above difficult situations. His joy strengthens us in times of trial and persecution. Joy is the Christian's secret strength. Trouble might surround you, but the Christian still has a reason to rejoice. We have heaven in our hearts as well as heaven in our future. Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. Joy was Jesus' strength, and it's also ours. Did you know the shortest verse in the English Bible is John 11, verse 35? Jesus wept. But the shortest verse in a Greek Bible is 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. Rejoice evermore. See, Jesus experienced sorrow for a season so that we could rejoice forever. Hey, it takes 72 muscles to frown, but it only takes 14 muscles to smile. A lot less effort goes into a smile than into a frown. I like to define the word rejoice as take joy. We don't always find ourselves joyful, but joy is always there for the taking. Sometimes we have to reach up and grab it from God. But God wants us to rejoice. He wants us to take joy in Jesus. Well, before Nehemiah left Persia to rebuild the walls, he had promised the Persian king that he would return and file a report. And that's exactly what he did. But while he was gone, the Jews compromised their faith. They drifted from following God, and God raised up the prophet Malachi to call them to repentance. It's interesting, there were three issues that Malachi addressed. You can read about them in his prophecy at the end of the Old Testament. The Jews' failure to keep the Sabbath day holy, number one. Their negligence to pay tithes and offerings, number two and their intermarriage with the pagans around them, number three. And the Jews took heed to Malachi's warning. In fact, so much so that by the time you get to the first century, in the days of Jesus, these three issues become a primary focus of Jewish religion and therefore a focus of Jesus' ministry. Judaism, by the time of Christ, had added scores and scores of oppressive rules governing the Sabbath. Jesus challenged those rules. They also tithed to the point of counting out every tenth grain of spices. 
Jesus talked about how silly that was. And they had such a deep disdain for Gentiles that they didn't want to be under the same roof as a Gentile, let alone marry one. You see, they overreacted to Malachi's prophecy, and Jesus had to address their overemphasis. The prophecy of Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, both in terms of order and chronology. It's followed by a period that we call the 400 silent years. No other prophetic word comes from God for four centuries. The New Testament book of Hebrews puts it this way. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. There were no more spoken words or written words from God until He spoke to His people Israel and the world through the living Word of God, Jesus Christ. And so, write down on your paper, silent years, 400, 400 silent years. And so we've got the new covenant, regather, regenerate, reestablish. We've got Zerubbabel, builds the temple, Ezra builds the people. Nehemiah builds the walls. We've got 400 silent years. Shh. 400 silent years. Everybody got it? Okay. For 400 years now, the world waited for the next and greatest revelation from God, which was the coming of His Son. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, written around 740 B.C., predicted the where of Jesus' birth. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Other prophecies foretold when and how. Isaiah 7 verse 14, The Lord will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. And bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Finally, the day came. Mary delivered a baby boy and named him Jesus. <coughs> All the Old Testament, the prophecies, the covenants, the commandments, the priests, the sacrifices and feasts, the temple and tabernacle, the characters and the storylines from Genesis to Malachi. The whole Old Testament had pointed to Jesus. Now the Lord of glory has come. And so on the last line of your sheet there, you want to write down birth of Jesus. And here's how we'll remember that. There we go. Birth of Jesus. We'll rock rock him to sleep here. Birth of Jesus. Okay? So we've got the new covenant. Regather regenerate, reestablish, Zerubbabel, rebuilt the temple, Ezra, rebuilt the people, Nehemiah, rebuilt the wall, 400 silent years, and the birth of Jesus. All right. Ezra 9, verses 8 and 9, helped us sum up this last period of the Old Testament history. Ezra says to Israel, 
And now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. He's saying that by God's grace, God had given them a new start. They had put down a peg in the land. They're back. And now they want God to enlighten their eyes. Ezra continues, For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Even after their idolatry, even after their rebellion, God was willing to forgive them and start over with them. That's his amazing mercy. And that's good news for us too, isn't it? That God loves us and he has a plan for us. And even though there are times when we fail to cooperate with God and we even hinder what he wants to do, nevertheless, his plan remains the same. And if we let him, God will do a good work in us.